0: The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org.
1: You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer.
0: As Josh mentioned earlier, this is our 100th Sunday as a church. Uh, And I just want to start by saying that getting to stand in this pulpit most weeks and bring God's word to you has been and continues to be uh, one of the highest honors and sweetest joys of my life. And I want to commend you also as a congregation for being a delight to preach to, for being hungry for god's word i love preaching the word of god not just generally but to you specifically Uh, so thank you uh, sincerely thank you for coming eager to hear god's word these past 100 sundays please do take your copy of god's word and and turn with me now to mark chapter 14. mark chapter 14 If, if you're not familiar with how the Bible is organized. Don't worry, you're not in the wrong place. Um, I'll, I'll just help you understand briefly what uh, we're gonna be doing. So, so the big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are the verses. So you're gonna wanna go to the beginning of the New Testament, find the Gospel of Mark, and then the big number 14. And then throughout the sermon, I'll be referencing various verse numbers within that big chapter 14. Just to remind you of the context, Mark is writing this account of Jesus' life in the uh, middle of the first century, 50s AD, so less than a generation after the events he's describing. In other words, far too early for legends to have had time to develop and settle in. He's writing this in the generation of the eyewitnesses, which means that there were still people walking around, still alive, still moving around Palestine that you could talk to, to either verify or falsify the things Mark is reporting. In other words, the genre of what we're looking at this morning is not legend, it's not fable, it's not myth, it's not editorial opinion, it's history. Well, it's the final week of Jesus' life. We've gone from him triumphantly entering Jerusalem to cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree, to debating various delegations of the religious establishment, to being anointed by a woman with expensive oil, to celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples and instituting a meal to commemorate his impending death. And the last thing we read, you'll see there in, in chapter 14, verse 26, was this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Immediately after the Last Supper, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which is where we pick up this morning. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 14, 27 to 42. One of the reasons I try to give a main idea sentence most weeks is because it's a way to help train you to read your Bibles for yourselves. And, and, and I've heard sermons before that have absolutely dazzled me, but they haven't exactly left me thinking, oh, I, I could have seen that myself. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to do is show you that You can do this too. You can read the Bible tomorrow morning and excavate treasures from within it. And so, if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, the main idea of the passage is the main idea of the message. Beware of churches where the passage is only a springboard for the preacher to talk about something else. So, here's what I think is the main idea of the passage and therefore of this message. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath so there wouldn't be a single drop left for you if you're trusting him. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath so there wouldn't be a single drop left for you if you're trusting him. We'll think about that as we make our way through this scene in in three points and we'll we'll just use very simple words emotional words to to describe this scene abandoned agonized and alone abandoned we'll see that in verses 27 to 31 agonized that's verses 32 to 36 and alone verses 37 to 42 abandoned agonized alone first abandoned. Verse 27. Look there at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Remember, we've just left the last supper where Jesus predicted what? He predicted Judas's betrayal. Well, here in the immediate. Scene following, he goes even further, saying to the remaining 11, Hey, it's not just Judas that's going to blow it. All of you are going to vanish. All of you are going to be thinking of yourselves. All of you are going to scatter and abandon me in my loneliest hour. And to make the point, he quotes the prophet Zechariah from 500 years earlier. We, we heard it in our scripture reading earlier in the service. Listen to what God says in Zechariah thirteen seven. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. By invoking this ancient prophecy, Jesus is identifying himself as the long-awaited shepherd of Israel, the one who has finally come to feed and nurture and care for and protect the people of God. He's claimed this before, but now there's a tragic twist. Keep your finger in Mark 14 and turn back with me to chapter 6. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 6. I want to remind you of something here. So Jesus in chapter six is about to feed the 5,000. And this is what we read in chapter six, verse 34. Mark six thirty-four. When Jesus landed, that is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. You can turn back to Mark 14, but do you see the tragic contrast there? (laughs) Chapter six, the sheep have been without a shepherd. Chapter 14, the shepherd will be without his sheep. Chapter 6, the shepherd is gathering his flock. Chapter 14, the flock is abandoning the shepherd. One last detail I want you to notice in the Zechariah quotation, verse 27, is who is doing the striking? Who's striking the shepherd such that the sheep scatter off? Well, it's not ultimately the sheep nor is it the Pharisees, nor is it the Romans. Ultimately, it's the Lord Almighty himself. This parallels another key prophecy about the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53.10, this may sound familiar, Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him, or as the old King James put it, it pleased the Lord to crush him. In coming weeks, we'll be thinking more about the multifaceted meaning of the death of Christ. But we dare not lose this fundamental truth. We dare not miss this fundamental aspect. It was always God's plan A. Everything we're gonna watch unfold, every frame of every scene is the choreography of a sovereign God. In his sovereign plan, will stretch even beyond the Messiah's death. Verse 28, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus forecasts their abandonment and his death, and now he forecasts life beyond the grave. But why Galilee? I mean, The garden tomb where he's going to be raised is outside of Jerusalem. Galilee is at least 40 miles north. Why Galilee? Well, there are a few different reasons we could give by way of conjecture, but think about it. These guys are going to abandon Jesus. He's just told them, hey, you're going to leave me in my moment of greatest need, and you're going to scatter. Where are they going to go? They're going to go home. They are going to go back to the place of, of, of safety and comfort to figure out life without their master. In fact, it, it, it's not going to be a place of safety and comfort, though, because they're going to be met with a lot of shame and embarrassment and scorn from people who said, I told you so. I told you that guy was crazy and that you've wasted the last three years of your life. I mean, just imagine what the disciples may be thinking as they make that long journey north back to Galilee. I I really thought, I really thought he was going to be the one to deliver us from the Romans. But did you see him pinned up there on that cross, utterly helpless? I guess the Pharisees were right. I guess he wasn't the Messiah after all. And so what Jesus is saying here on the eve of his arrest is absolutely precious. He's saying, when I walk out of my tomb, you're not going to have to come find me. I'm going to come find you. You're going to feel lost and embarrassed and bewildered, thinking the story is over, forgetting everything I've told you will happen, and yet it's in that place of your greatest failure and shame that I am going to step into your story again. In that place of your greatest failure and shame that I'm going to come to you again, I will not be ashamed to call you my brothers. Verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, Jesus, even if all fall away, I will not. Have you ever said something similar or, or at least thought something similar? Even if everyone around me, even if, even if others in my generation are not living for God, I will. It's, it's very easy to succumb to that mindset. And the Bible itself warns against it. We heard this in the call to worship at the beginning of the service. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. There's a warning and there's an encouragement. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 is the warning. Ten, thirteen is the encouragement. Warning, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Some of you need to hear that warning this morning. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. But others, if you really need to hear this encouragement, No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. Not you are faithful. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, not if, but when, when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, a way out so that you can endure it. Our confidence can so easily and subtly become misplaced, just like Peter's was. I'm sure by saying, hey, even if all the rest of these guys fall away, Jesus, I won't. I'm sure Peter was trying to honor Jesus. He was trying to to be courageous and valiant, just like his master had taught him. But what was he actually doing? where was he placing his faith he was placing his faith in his faith not in his master do you see the difference peter was putting his faith in the fact that he would be able to stand for jesus not that jesus would be able to hold him up it's 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 an insidious temptation that we have to be aware of, placing our confidence in our faith more than we place that confidence in Jesus. Verse 30. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, Peter, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. I mean, it's one thing if one guy gets it wrong, but that's a haunting final sentence. All the others said the same. Eleven voices in unison. Master, we're not going anywhere. We've been with you for three years. We've been through far worse. We've got your back. You can trust us. Jesus, you can trust us. Which, of course, is a very different thing than saying, oh, Jesus, please help us to trust you. Abandoned. Point two, agonized. Agonized agonized. The great British pastor Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, once confessed, since it would be impossible for any believer, however experienced, to know all our Lord endured in mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden. So let's enter together. Let's step into Gethsemane. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. This is a specific place in the Mount of Olives hillside. You can visit it today. And Jesus said to his disciples, verse 32, sit here while I pray. Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. Now, now, just pause there. How amazing is it that after Peter's foolish comment, Jesus brings him even further in? I mean, this is not what I would expect to read in the very next verse. This is not what I would have likely done. I mean, Peter's like, Jesus, I'll never fail. I'll never fall. I'll never let you down. But rather than getting annoyed and just kind of putting him in time out, Jesus says, I want to spend more time with you. Come along, Peter. Come in to the garden. There are actually just two other times in Mark's whole gospel when Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John aside. I mean, we, we think of them as, as the inner circle of Jesus and they were, but it's not like every other chapter we've seen an instance where it's just Jesus and the three of them. It's only happened two other times. Do you remember them? First was in chapter five when, when Jesus stepped into the synagogue ruler Jairus' house with Peter, James, and John and, and saw the corpse of Jairus' 12-year-old daughter and said to her, little girl, get up. And she did. The only other time was in chapter 9 when Peter, James, and John had the ultimate mountaintop experience and got to see Jesus transfigured in a blaze of glory before them. Clearly, Jesus wanted to show something specific to his closest friends. Clearly, Jesus wanted to show them his power over death and his divine glory. And here, one last time, He wants to bring them in to show them a final thing, to teach them a final lesson. He wants to show them the extent of his suffering and therefore the extent of his love. End of verse 33. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Why is Jesus so deeply troubled here? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, why this level of shuddering terror? I mean, can we just be honest and say that there are a lot of other martyrs and religious heroes and even non-religious people throughout history who have faced a scary death with a lot more composure than this. I mean, Jesus is not exactly an example of, of facing death with calm confidence. At least that's not how it reads in verse 33. But the difference between what he's facing here and what anyone else has ever faced is that he's facing a death that is utterly unique. No one has faced a death like this. Jesus is not just shrinking from the prospect of giving up his last breath. He's not even just shrinking from the prospect of torture and suffocation on a Roman cross. No, he's getting a foretaste. Here in the garden, God is giving him a foretaste of what it's gonna feel like to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. In his human nature, Jesus was not immune to sorrow and pain. That's, that's one of the, the obvious lessons that just arises straight up from the page. He was not immune to sorrow and pain, which means he can sympathize with you in yours. He was not, as the cliche goes, and I hope no one here has this tattooed on themselves because that would be awkward. He was not too blessed to be stressed. Look at Gethsemane. Look at Gethsemane. Find me another religious leader who knows the depth of human distress, the depth of human anguish like he does. Find me another guru or hero who can enter into your pain and give you real hope because he himself entered it and came out the other side. In fact, not only won't you find another leader, you won't even find a spouse or friend who will identify with you and console you and strengthen you like he can when you're overwhelmed with sorrow with anguish with questions with confusion with sadness with fear come to jesus christ he understands Only the Lord Jesus Christ can perfectly sympathize with you in your pain. Oh friend, go to him. (laughs) Run to him. And through faith, collapse into his open arms. Well, the drama of this scene intensifies even more in verse 35. Going a little farther, Mark says, going a little farther, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Do you see what's happening? Just he, He's not on the cross right now. Just the anticipation of what's coming, just the anticipation of the cross was enough to throw the Messiah's soul into violent agony. He couldn't even remain upright. As one commentator put it, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death, It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father. Jesus came to the garden to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened to him, and he staggered. He is staring. For the first time in his life, I mean, He's had glimpses here and there as he's casting out demons and and all the rest. But here, for the first time in his life, he is staring unblinkingly, making eye contact with God's curse against our sin. Just look at his desperation. If possible, Father, if there's any possible way, any other way, please remove this cup from me. The cup is not some random metaphor Jesus is making up. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, it's a symbol for God's righteous wrath. I'll just give you two of many examples. Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Jeremiah says, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it or Job 21, let God repay the wicked so that they themselves will experience it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. That's what's making the Son of God stagger. That's the cup he pleads to be taken from him if there's any other way. But the reason he's so distressed is because he knows there actually is no other way. No other way for rebels like us to be spared from that wrath we deserve. There are actually only two options that we're facing Jesus in Gethsemane. Either he drinks the cup or we do. And that's precisely what happened on the cross. And in Spurgeon's words, he took the cup in both hands and drank damnation dry. You realize, don't you, that there are things that are impossible, impossible for an all-powerful God, things he cannot do because they violate his nature. According to Scripture, God Can't lie. He can't change. He can't cease to exist. He can't deny his character. He can't fail his people. And here we see, by effectively denying this prayer request, that God can't forgive rebels apart from the death of his sinless son. That's how serious your sin is. (laughs) Nothing less was adequate, nothing less could have done the job. Nothing less than the death of his eternal incarnate son could drain that cup. It's a cup every single one of us in this room deserves, but it's a cup he came to earth to drink. Not just to smell, not just to taste, not just to sip, but to drain. To drain on behalf of everyone, who would ever turn away from their sin and put their trust, their faith, their hope in his merit, his righteousness, his life, his death, his resurrection, his grace. And friends, the reason we can be here this morning, in fact, the only reason I can tell you with confidence that we're not wasting our time just playing church, playing religion, the reason I can tell you we're not wasting our time being here together this morning As forgiven rebels, as Christians, is because this is what happened. Jesus didn't end the prayer by saying, take this cup from me. There may be a period in your English Bibles there, but there was no final period in signing off in his prayer. There was a comma. Take this cup from me, yet, nevertheless, not What I will, but what you will. The same Jesus, who had famously taught his disciples to pray. I mean, what did he tell them? They come to him, Jesus, Master, teach us to pray. Okay, here's how you pray. What did he teach them in the relative safety of a Galilean mountainside? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he prays the same thing here. Having begged in his human nature, begged for this cup of divine justice to be removed, he ends by saying, but Father, you know best. Abandoned, agonized, and number three, alone. Verse 37, then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them praying too. No, they're sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? It's interesting to me that Jesus calls Peter Simon here. Simon's actually his, or his original name, the name he grew up with. But Jesus, if you remember, had renamed him Peter, meaning rock, when he had kind of officially appointed him as one of his apostles. And ever since that moment, that commissioning of the apostles in chapter 3, he's never again called him Simon until now. Remember, the Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. He would have remembered a detail like this. It's almost as if when he's walking in the spirit, despite missteps, we know Peter was far from perfect, but when he's walking in the spirit, he's Peter. But when he succumbs to the flesh at such a crucial moment, it's like he's reverting to who he was before he had even met Christ. Verse 38. Watch and pray, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I remember several years ago, driving home from church in Louisville and asking uh, one of my little daughters, she must've been four or five at the time, what she, what Bible story she had learned in Sunday school. Uh, To which she immediately replied, uh, Jesus prayed to God and three men were sleepy. (laughs) Which is a great way to sum up the story. Let's think, though, about why this sleepiness is presented not as some normal virtuous thing, but actually as an indictment against their weak faith. He gives the command, watch and pray. And then he embeds the reason. That's what one thing I love about Jesus. He, he so often tells us more than he's obligated to. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us why. He goes beyond obligation through love to give us reasons to trust him. So he says, watch and pray. And then he embeds the reason so that you won't fall into temptation. Because even though the spirit may be willing, the flesh is weak. Oh, how I can relate to this. I, I don't know about you, but, but I, I know the experience of succumbing to the weakness of the flesh, to the temptation of the flesh. Why? Because my mind is just so fixated on earthly things. See, this is the moment of the story. The moment of their lives when the disciples should have been ready to rise to the occasion. I mean, this was shining time for the disciples. This should have been the moment where they rose to the occasion. Everything had been building toward these final climactic events. Their master had asked them for help. He's over there on the ground, convulsing with anguish and terror, sweating drops of blood, and they're enjoying a nap. Thankfully, though, they learned their lesson. Verse 39, once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, this time he found them praying. No, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Remember at the end of chapter four, uh, when Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and they're caught in this, horrific, torrential storm. Do you remember what Jesus was doing? Sleeping. And and do you remember what the disciples were yelling as they shook him awake? Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Remember that question? They, They weren't so much asking whether he was God, but whether he's good. Sinclair Ferguson puts it, it was the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason he was in the boat, indeed the world, was precisely because he cared for them. And I think Gethsemane is, is almost a reversal of that experience in the boat. Here, the disciples are sleeping and Jesus essentially looks at them and says, do you not care that I'm about to perish? But here's the difference between the two scenes. The reason Jesus was taking a nap during the sea storm is because he was in control of it. It was the sweet sleep of sovereignty. But the reason they're sleeping during his storm is because they're only thinking of themselves. See, they're asking Jesus on the boat, don't you care, is hurtful. It's a bad question because he's already shown them. He's already proven to him that he does. But him asking them, essentially, don't you care? Couldn't you keep watch for one single hour is a good question because it reveals their hearts. He's not trying to shame them. He's trying to protect them. See, on the boat, he was protecting them physically, and here he wants to protect them and instruct them spiritually. Verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, The son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners, delivered into the hands of sinners. That's a phrase we've already seen in chapter 9 and then again in chapter 10 to describe where Jesus has predicted his own betrayal and demise. Verse 42, rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Just notice, especially there in verse 42, even in his death, Darkest moment, his lowest moment, nothing surprises him. Nothing blindsides him. He's in total command of every frame of every scene. How many times in these verses did the disciples fail Jesus by falling asleep? Three. How many times will Peter go on to deny Jesus? Three. And how many times on a Galilean beach after the resurrection will Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Three. A threefold failure in the garden followed by a threefold denial matched by a threefold restoration. Even when we let Jesus down over and over and over again, He doesn't throw in the towel. He comes after us, as we thought about earlier. He comes to find us where we've run to. He comes to find us in the shatter, in the shadows we've scattered off to. He comes to reinstate us and to dignify us by drawing us back into the light. And one other lesson. Here is, is that just as in the garden Jesus was praying while his disciples slept, you realize there's a sense in which he's still doing so today. Even when we're failing him, when we are acting like these disciples, when we're succumbing to the weakness of the flesh, to the temptations of the evil one, when we're sleeping on his promises and plans, Do you know what he's doing? He's praying. He's praying. No longer in Gethsemane, but in glory. And no longer for himself, but for us. In Dane Ortland's spectacular book, Gentle and Lowly, there's a whole chapter devoted to the question, what is Jesus doing right now? (laughs) Maybe you've wondered that before. Like literally this morning, What is the risen Jesus Christ up to? Ortland writes, quote, For many of us, our functional Jesus isn't really doing anything now. But think of it this way. It's not that Christ's heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but is now cooled down, settling back once more into kindly indifference. No, his heart is as drawn to his people now as ever. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. One way to think of Christ's intercession then is simply this. Jesus is praying for you right now. Beloved, this means Jesus is praying for you even when you've grown sluggish in praying to him. Jesus is praying for you even when you're too racked with anxiety to put down your phone and pick up your Bible, to, to put down your bills or your calendar or your health records or your worries about your kids and spend time alone on your face before the Lord of glory. But remembering this, that 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 Jesus is interceding for us makes all the difference. As Robert Murray McChain once put it, if I could hear Christ, if I could just hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And to the degree you realize that, that you internalize that, that you you meditate on that, to the degree you realize that your king is praying for you, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be ready to watch and pray yourself, which is why Paul invokes, echoes, Gethsemane words in Colossians two. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And by the way, if you're ever discouraged and just live long enough, walk with God long enough, you will be. If you're ever discouraged, feeling like the heavens are made of brass when it comes to your prayers, that that your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, take heart that even Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, even he had a prayer go unanswered. Father, if possible, take this cup from me, to which the answer was what? No. And again, it's because the answer was no and because he was willing to submit to his Father's will that we're here today. Praise God for this unanswered prayer. And if that's true of Jesus, the incarnate King of glory, how much more true for you and me. You don't have to understand all of God's ways. You don't have to prefer all of his providences. But those of you who've walked with him for decades can testify to this. One day, Christian, you will look back on your life and see that God often loved you best by not answering certain prayers. Sometimes a no from God is better than a yes to all your dreams. Yes, go to him boldly. Yes, beg him for good things, but not as one who thinks you know better than he does. Lay those bold requests at his feet and trust his wisdom, trust his timing, trust his purposes, trust his heart. He will always give you what's best for you. Not most of the time. Always, he will give you what's best for you. Even if it's painful even if you can't yet see the full picture. Well, as we conclude, where were the disciples, just by way of reminder, where were the disciples immediately prior to this experience in the garden? Well, they were in the upper room. Remember, they were enjoying one last supper with Jesus. And if you recall there, there was another cup which Jesus took and held up, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. See, we can sometimes, and I realize I did an Advent series in between the Last Supper passage and this, so we can think these things are days apart. They're not. This is Thursday night in the final week of his life. These are back-to-back events. We're meant to read them together. We're peering at two very different scenes, and at two very different cups. One is a cup of salvation. The other, a cup of judgment. One is a cup of blessing. The other, a cup of curse. One, a cup representing redemption and life. The other, representing wrath and death. One, Jesus offers to us. The other, he drinks for us. Brothers and sisters, if he hadn't finished that prayer, with the words, yet, not what I will, but what you will. If he hadn't pressed on in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, if he hadn't drained that cup of God's holy justice, then you know what that would mean? It would mean that you and I would have to spend eternity drinking it, but never draining it. But he did finish the prayer, and he did drain the cup, which means that now the only cup in your life is one that is overflowing not with judgment, not with wrath, but with unfathomable grace. See, long ago in a very different garden, the Garden of Eden, the first Adam failed his test, so we died. But 2,000 years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam passed his test, so we live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for sending your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, not just to teach and to heal and to perform miracles, but to go to Gethsemane, to fall on his face in your presence. And Lord, we praise you for holding him up by the power of your Holy Spirit. We praise you that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us, help us to go to you, Lord, watchfully and prayerfully, and trust that you have so drained the cup we deserved that there is not a single drop of judgment left for us if we're hidden in Christ. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.